There's a danger, and especially in our contemporary world today, there is a danger on worshiping based on how you feel rather than based on who God is and what he's done in Christ. And there, there's a danger in, in, uh, in assessing worship based on how, how, uh, how emotive and how emotional you got based on the song and the drum beat and how big it was and at the right time. Uh, there's a danger in only worshiping uh, rather than, rather than, let me make it, spin it in a positive, rather than worshiping based on God's word and singing God's truth based on who he is, you'll sing based on how you feel and what you want and your personal preferences rather than who he is and what he's done in the gospel. And we want to balance that as much as we can. And I hope you feel that as we sing and the songs that, that we're singing, that it's not just based on this roller coaster of emotional uh, highs and, and how, how the, drum, the drum gets me every time, FYI. Every time. That, Todd, I, I love you, man. And you're dr- the way it gets me every time. Uh, but we want to sing God's truth. We want to sing who he is, not based on how we feel. And I, and I just want to make sure that's clear. There's an intentionality behind what we're doing here. It's not just uh, personal preference. Because if it was personal preference, there'd be different songs uh, that would be sung here. But this is, this is about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so let us remember that as we sing uh, together. Um, all right. Let's turn into Matthew 5. I'm anxious to bring you God's word this morning. Matthew 5. <clears throat> By the way, uh, I wasn't supposed to preach this morning. Uh, Elder Chad was going to preach, and he woke up uh, not feeling the greatest, and out of a concern and an abundance of caution, uh, he asked me to pinch hit for him. And uh, if you know me at all, uh, I was ready. So <laughs> uh, uh, by God's grace, I'm going to give you, uh, and only by God's grace, not by my own wit or power, going to give you his word uh, this morning. So... Matthew 5, we're in the Beatitudes, uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, God's word uh, to us. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. And what, we, what we've been doing, and, and, uh, and we're going to continue on the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to flow from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, and, and what we've seen is as Jesus starts uh, his, uh, his, the most famous message by the most famous man that's ever lived to a multitude of different people. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to multitudes of people, men and women, children, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, all the Essenes, all, all of them, all of them. And, he, and they're expecting him 
to say something. They're expecting him to say one thing, and what they actually get is something completely different. See, what, what Jesus says is that these are not a, a buffet of you get to pick and choose which ones you like. So you like you liked the blessed are those who mourn, maybe, but you don't like the blessed are those who are merciful. I just want to say you can't pick and choose. It's not a church buffet. This is the summary of what it means to live in light of the upside-down kingdom, to live in light of the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, if I am your king, if I am your lord, then you will live like this. They're a package deal. And what Jesus comes up and he says, he says, if you are poor in spirit, if you are meek, if you will hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you are merciful, if you are pure in heart, if you are a peacemaker, then here's what you can expect in verse 10. You will be persecuted. Do you see that? He's, he's saying, if you are all of these things, if you follow the whole Jesus into all of life, then you can expect persecution. Why? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go into it to answer that question this morning. And where we're focusing on in verse 10, verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm reminded of this quote, the greatest criticism of the church today is that no one wants to persecute it because there's nothing very much to persecute it about. There's, there's a problem with the church just getting by. There's a problem with the church just staying kind of center uh, and, and not, not, uh, not being seen, not being known. We'd, I just, like, uh, I grew up in a big family. I grew up, I have a twin brother, I have two older sisters, and I have a younger brother, and my mom and dad are right there. And there was a, just a, uh, when you weren't getting called out for doing something wrong, that was a good thing. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to stay even keeled right? Like just below the radar so nobody sees me. You know, it's one of those things. And, and when the church operates like that, it's a problem. The problem with the church is that it has nothing to persecute it about. And that's a problem because we should be living in an upside down kingdom. We should be living in a, as salt. Verse 13 of Matthew 5, you are salt of the earth. So the Beatitudes then come in and they show us a different way, a way that opposes the way that we've been so discipled in. And if you were to be honest with yourself, if you were to finally just be honest with yourself and stop for a moment, you would acknowledge that you've been dissuaded and discipled by the world more so than you would like to admit. And this is a safe space. There's no judgment in that. The beginning of moving forward in newness of life in Christ is admitting the flaws of the present and the sins of the present to move forward because what is not transformed is transmitted. What's not transformed from the past will be in one way or another transmitted to the future in the present today. We feel that, don't we? We all have things that need uprooted and things that need revealed and only by an honest living in the light can that happen. And the Beatitudes then come in and said, they, Jesus comes in through the Beatitudes and says, if we look like the world, then we have nothing to offer the world. You are salt, Jesus says, salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness in verse 13 of chapter 5, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to live in light of who I am. This is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. You are citizens of my kingdom, not where you live and not the nation that you live in. You are wholly different. And that's good news for our world today, isn't it? 
Jesus is, is saying by, by, look at just verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they have no merit before a holy God. Blessed are those who don't try and earn their salvation because they know they can't. He's by proxy calling out the Pharisees, calling out the religious elites. And he's saying, you're trying to earn your salvation. But no, it's the blessed, the blessed people are those who are poor in spirit. The blessed people are those who know they can't. You're blessed when you know that you have nothing in your hands that you bring before a holy God, but you simply cling to the cross. You're blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who know this world is not how it's supposed to be. You're blessed. And so he's talking and he's saying, you can either have the approval of this world or you can have the approval of your Father God. But you can't have both. What we must understand as we enter into verse, verses 10 through 12 is that we are, as default, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, if that's what you call yourself this morning, if, by, if you've put your faith and hope and trust in Christ and Him alone, and you were saved by faith through grace alone, then you are of a wholly different nation. You are of a wholly different citizenship. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. And we must understand this before we even begin to unpack verses 10 through 12. That Jesus didn't come to make your kingdom known. He came to make his kingdom known. Jesus didn't come to make our name famous. He came to make his name famous. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. There are many other passages we can go to. This one just stood out to me the most. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. What we must understand is that the Christian and the non-Christian belong to two entirely different worlds. Two entirely different realms. We operate differently under a new king, under a new lord. And his name is Jesus. And that, that means we're going to be living a little bit differently. And which is why we, back to Matthew 5 named this series the Upside Down Kingdom because in God's kingdom, the way up is the way down. The way to power is to be lowly and serve. That to be, the way to life is to die. Like, does, I mean, anybody ever just stop for a moment and just be like, that makes zero sense. Like, we can say that to God, by the way. Like, you can be honest with him and say, that does not make any sense to me. And, and that reveals, and I've done that, so it only reveals that I've been discipled by this world more than I would like to admit. That the way to life is death. So when we talk about persecution, when we talk about this word persecuted, literally, the word Jesus decides to use here is it, it means to be followed or pressed hard after, literally to pursue as one does fleeing an enemy. It means to chase or harass or vex or pressure and was used for chasing down criminals. Speaks of a, it speaks of an intensely effort, an intense effort leading to pursue with an earnestness or a diligence in order to lay hold of and oppress or harass the blessed. 
This takes many forms, but there's a common result in the persecution of God's people in God's word. And what we see is that it actually, persecution becomes the catalytic spark that launches an explosion of gospel growth. So turn with me to Acts 7 briefly. And I, I think we have trouble understanding this in the, in the Western world, especially in America, persecution and, and what this means. And listen, I am not downplaying or degrading any amount of persecution that we feel. It just looks differently in America than it does elsewhere. Acts chapter 7. This is the stoning of Stephen, and, and this is Stephen's speech. And, and if you turn to the back end of chapter 7, you'll get to kind of the, the thrust of it. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And, and heard what? Well, he preached a sermon essentially uh, calling them all out. <laughs> and uh, in verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, look, he said, See, heaven open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, later Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Man, what a profound statement. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And look at who approved, who was standing there approving their killing. And Saul approved of their killing. Now, now if you highlight or underline, um, go back up and look at, look at the stance of Jesus in verse 56. I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We're going to come back to that, but highlight, under, underline that. And then look at what happened in light of the persecution of Stephen, the stoning and death of Stephen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What happened in light of the stoning and persecution of Stephen, what happened to the church? What was it forced to do? Scatter. It was forced to scatter. It wasn't in a centralized location anymore. It was now scattered, set up where? In Judea, in Samaria, and elsewhere. It was the persecution of Stephen and the disciples that led to the scattering and gathering of the saints, which is why we're here this morning. How amazing is that? And if, if you want more of a real, back to Matthew 5, if you want just more of a, a real life today uh, example, previous to 1949, there were roughly 5 million Chinese Christians in the country. It used to be a missionary hub previous to 1949, and if you know your history, you know what happened in 1949. The communists took over. And when the communists took over, they killed all, they, they kicked out all the Christian missionaries, or they killed them. They killed every pastor they could get their hands on. They shut down every church they could see. And what seemed to be a mishap or misfortune for Christianity actually became the vehicle for the explosion of the gospel to grow in new ways and new lights. Following 1949, roughly 40 years after, we know there to be between 50 and 100 million Christians in China today. That's more of the population than the Communist Party. And what was it that set it alive? What was it that, that 
had, was the spark to a catalytic explosion. It was persecution. It was not staying status quo. It was not staying comfortable. It was in the heat of persecution and the fire of persecution that the gospel grows. So what makes us think we're any different? It's a redemptive spark. It's a redemptive fire. It's a redemptive suffering. How about this? Revelation chapter 1. I just want to lay the groundwork for understanding and unpacking this. Revelation chapter 1. If you know a little bit about Revelation and who wrote it, it was the disciple John, the beloved disciple John. Look at, and look at where he was in uh, verse 9. I, John, your brother. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He got exiled. He was the only disciple of Christ not to be martyred for his friendship with Jesus. Eleven of the twelve disciples, those who most followed Jesus most intimately, were martyred for their faith. And the one that was left to live a full life and a long life was exiled to Patmos. And now, remember this. Patmos, then, literally means, it translates to my killing. Because it was a desolate island. It was a desolate place. It was an infertile place. It had nothing for no one. You expected, when you went there, they expected you to die. It was an island, a Greek island, off of 20 miles off the west coast of modern Turkey. And, during, and, and John was exiled there during the latter years of his life. And when Rome had exiled John to Patmos, he was the last remaining member of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And the prison of Patmos, though, actually became the place of vision, revelation, and manifestation for the age, of, for the age disciple of Jesus. He actually saw Jesus heard from Jesus, was, had intimacy with Jesus based on being exiled into Pat, to Patmos. Rome later tried their very best to silence this last remaining disciple of Christ. Little did they know, though, that the final and greatest revelation was about to be given on the infamous Isle of Patmos. God has, as God has used a whale and his transporting agent with Jonah, God using the exiling of John to Patmos by Rome to bring about the final revelation of his son in the book of Revelation. John wrote this book in exile. What the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. How interesting then is it that John, this island of dry infertility, desolation, that John happened to be filled with the spirit of Christ in this dry and desolate place. Maybe there's a connection that we must be emptied of ourselves before we can be filled with Christ. Now back to Matthew 5. There is this intentionality that Jesus writes out the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. We'll stop there. Poor in spirit means you realize you don't have. Those who mourn are mourning the loss of something. Those who are meek are not trying to put off or be filled with something that they're not. They know they aren't. Those who hunger and thirst, why would you hunger and thirst? What does it mean? It connotates that you don't have a feeling. So maybe there's a connection between being empty in order to be filled. 
Maybe there's a connection of persecution that drives you into an emptiness of yourself so you can finally maybe be filled with God in Christ. So maybe you feel persecuted this morning. Maybe you feel beat down this morning by your fellow brothers or or, uh, people around you or the world even. Maybe even the political environment we find ourselves in right now feels like a persecution to you. And Jesus is standing there saying, yes, my dear son and daughter, be emptied of anything other than me so I could fill you. Maybe it's you being revealed. Maybe God is revealing to you that you're trying to fill yourself with something that will never be able to satisfy you. So you must be emptied of it completely. You must be shaken of it completely. You must even feel like you're being persecuted so that you can finally be filled with Christ on high. Maybe that's what's happening. Because in order to be filled with God in Christ, you must be emptied of self. You must die to self. And there's the paradox of the upside-down kingdom. This is the flow of these beatitudes, empty before God, still filled by him. Now we are poured out to the nations. Grace always runs downhill from heaven to us and from us to the world. It's just how it works. See, for the people listening to this message, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the problem wasn't their behavior. Remember, it was their heart. Turn to Matthew 23 with me. Verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones, of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The problem wasn't their behavior. The problem was their heart. And they were supposed to be guiding people into heaven ushering people into heaven. It was them that was actually stopping them from that very means, from the very end goal. The irony was that these were the people that they, who were persecuting the church. This is the irony of it. It was the religious elites that were doing the persecution to the followers of Christ. Look at Acts 9 with me. Just to put some legs to that. Acts 9, starting verse 1. We're going to be in Acts quite a bit this morning. Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against who? The Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any any there who belonged to the way, which were the Christians belong to Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And whose name was Saul or Paul doing this in? Whose name? What was the motive? He felt he was upholding the integrity. He, up, he felt he was upholding the name of God. So it was actually the religious elites that were persecuting disciples of Jesus. Because we must understand this. In America today, our greatest persecution... Our greatest persecution is not outside of us, but actually from within us. Our greatest persecution, we must understand that the greatest threat in America for disciples of Christ today are not those outside the church, but rather those within the church. The religious elite, the religious proud, the arrogant, those those who say, yeah, yeah, the gospel, but what else? 
And instead of nothing but the gospel, we don't move on from the gospel. We move deeper into the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Our greatest threat in America today is Jesus plus something equals your life. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, he's good, but I want my American dream today. It's the greatest threat in America, in the Western world today. And we must understand that we're not facing uh, death as a persecution. I am not afraid to preach the gospel this morning. I am not risking my life in this nation of the free, of so many people's sacrifice and so many people's service. So I can stand here today. I am not risking my life because of those who have gone before me to protect this nation. But others are this morning. Do you understand, like, do you understand the freedom that we have here? But our greatest threat in America today is not outside of the church, but it's the religious elites within. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who persecute others. He said, blessed are those who, per- who, are, who are persecuted by others. He's saying to the religious elite, you have it all wrong. You think you are right side up when you are really upside down. See, this, this last beatitude in Matthew 5, back to the beatitudes, is a paradigm shift for us. If every single Christian is held under the weight of this beatitude, then what does this mean for us today? Look, look at, uh, just stay planted in Matthew 5. I know we're jumping. It's just what we do. Look at Luke 6, just a parallel account here. Verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when, you hate, when people hate you when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you already have received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. It is the religious elites that were persecuting the prophets. It was the religious arrogant that were doing the most persecution of the way, the followers of the disciples of Jesus. The greatest paradox is that the persons possessed of vital Christianity should be objects of persecution, that their Christ-centeredness should be the ground of that persecution, and that they should, on this very account, be esteemed happy. But to go back to the quote at the very beginning, the greatest criticism of the church today is that no one wants to persecute it because there's nothing to persecute about it. Look at this example quickly, Acts 5. Told you we were going to be in Acts. Verse 38 and 39. <clears throat> Therefore, so, so this is before Stephen is, is uh, stoned to death, but the, if you go back up to verse 17, they, they were persecuted, they were sought out, they were pursued. 
And at the end of the, the back end of this, look at verse 38. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you. This is the Sanhedrin, the, uh, I believe, the, the religious elites, the, uh, the teacher of the laws coming. And, and the Sanhedrin is there in verse 35. And what he tells the people who were doing the persecuting, he essentially says, leave them alone. Look at verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. <laughs> this, is, this is what we must see. When we're being persecuted because we're being fallen, sinful human beings, we have every right to be persecuted. When we're being persecuted in the name and fame of Jesus for his name's sake, not for our name's sake, we cannot fail. We're actually blessed. This is, this is the, the conundrum. This is the paradox. Look at Daniel chapter 3 with me. <clears throat> because remember, when the world is going to tell us one thing. The world is going to tell us this is how you find life. This is how you find joy. This is how you find happiness. You do what feels good. You do what feels right. You make yourself happy. You find every means available to make yourself full of life. You listen to what everyone else is saying. You follow the ways of this world. Daniel 3, verse 13. This is, you, you know the story. If you grew up in church at all, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And look at verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if our God doesn't rescue us from this fiery furnace of persecution, we still won't bow down to your gods and to your lords. That's almost like, by the way, uh, side note, that's a tattoo in the future, like waiting for somebody to be had, maybe me. Uh, but if not, but if not, right? But if not, we still won't bow down. We believe our God can rescue us from this persecution. We believe he can do it. But if not, we still won't give in. And I think we said it last week that I would rather this church be empty to a front row of all-out followers of Jesus Christ and disciples of Christ than filled to the balcony because we gave in and we tickled ears here. I'd rather be so committed and so devoted to following Jesus wherever he takes us and so full of who he is so full of the gospel, so true to God's word, that that means that numbers aren't a sign of health for us here. See, what, what Jesus is saying back in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, you are blessed when the world persecutes you because you don't look like the world. If you look like the world, there's nothing to be persecuted. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this. He's, a, he's a, just an amazing writer, pastor, theologian. He says, is, is this the reverse of what we would expect? Men and women who are poor in spirit, mourn for their sin, live lives of gracious meekness, long for God's righteousness, show mercy to others, are pure in heart, and seek peace between God and man. Would such people not be welcomed with open arms? After all, these are the very men and women the world so desperately needs. The world in which we live assumes that it will welcome Christians with open arms, and this is just not the truth. <laughs> See, when, when the Beatitudes make up our character, the character of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven under our Lord and King Christ, we as true believers will be persecuted for walking the narrow path, not the wide path. Look at Matthew Chapter 7 with me, verse 13. See, see uh, actually, back, back just to the Lord's Prayer here. This then is how you should pray, verse 9 of chapter 7. Oh, excuse me, no, let's go to 13. Chapter 7, verse 13, forgive me. Enter through the narrow gate. For, the wide, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Just look at the minor and major prophets. Virtually all of them were writing to a people in the context of exile, where the people of God were taken into captivity, either Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon or the superpower Assyria. And once again, the people of God were oppressed in those environments. They were a minority, not a majority. Look at David and Saul. He was constantly pursued by Saul. The entire of the New Testament itself is written in the context of first century Roman Empire, where if you were to declare anybody but Caesar as Lord, you would be killed. And how were the disciples called to be raised up? Well, Romans 10 tells us, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, not Caesar, but Jesus, what will happen to you? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That doesn't mean you'll be safe. That doesn't mean you'll be uh, have your creature comforts, that means that your hope in your life is not in this world. It's of another world. That's why the word blessed, blessed, literally translates to only talking about lowercase g gods. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is to talk about the otherworldly. That's why Jesus uses this word with intentionality to say, you are otherworldly, so start living like it, church. Stop putting your hope in things that can't satisfy. Jesus says these words back to Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are the per persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says these words for those who are experiencing persecution for their friendship with Jesus. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus is always giving special attention to those who are persecuted or beat up because of their faith. Back to Acts 7 now. I had told you to underline, highlight, make note of the stance of Jesus in verse 55. And then we'll land the plane and worship and fly out of here. But Stephen, 
Acts 7, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was one of the early deacons of the early church, one of the original deacons of the early church. He was martyred for his faith and friendship with Jesus. And as Jesus, and Jesus, in the act of being stoned to death of Stephen, watching this, he looks up and he gets a glimpse, Stephen gets a glimpse of Jesus. And what is Jesus' stance when his friend, when his brother, when his disciple is being stoned to death? See, because in every other instance of the finished, complete work of Christ, what is he doing? Is he standing or is he seated? The work is complete. There's nothing left to be done. He is finished. It is complete. Tetelestai is the Greek word. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But what is he doing here? He's standing. He's, he's looking over it. It's almost as if Jesus gets this fiery flame in him when he sees his brothers, his disciples, him, the, his friends being persecuted in his name. It's almost as if Jesus stands up, puffs up his chest and says, that's mine. She's mine. It's almost, he can't not do that. It's who he is. He intimately cares for us in light of the finished, complete work of Christ, he now, when we are persecuted for his name's sake, for following the whole Jesus into all of life, every minute of every day, and when we get beat up and beat down because of it in your workplace, in your home, in your friend groups, Jesus is not passively, idly sitting by. He's standing up saying, they're mine. And he's not a high priest who doesn't understand this. See, that's why we let scripture flow into our mind. We need to look at Hebrews 4. Jesus is not far removed to not understand what we are going through. No, he's a great high priest who understands, who sympathizes, who feels with us. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4, towards the back of your Bible. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus isn't far removed from our suffering. He's not far removed from our persecution. No, he's intimately involved in every minute and every second of it interceding for you and I that we would not give in to the ways and pleasures of this world because he knows it will never be able to satisfy you. So when this world is full of rage, we as followers of Jesus can be full of empathy, concern, and love. When this world is full of division, we can be the bridge makers and the peacemakers that bridge the gap between the angry and the other side. We can, we can actually be a different, better way because isn't that the good news of the gospel that there's a better way, church? What we have to be willing, though, as I, as I end, what we have to be willing as we walk with Jesus daily, intimately, spend time with Jesus, learn from Jesus, be discipled by Jesus, is what you have to learn is that he's going to rub up against you. He's going to step on your toes a little bit. Do you know what I mean by that? 
He's going to be like, oh, you're going to be responding to some of his commands and obedience. You're going to be responding. You're going to say, oh, I don't like that. I mean, am I, I'm not the only one, right? I don't even see heads nodding here. I can't not be the only one there. He's going to be like, oh. Jesus, I understand that, like, okay, love those who are really easy to love, but to love your enemies, I'm not so sure. How about that person? That person that walks in the room and you're, like, trying to find an excuse to, no. But Jesus says, no, love them, pursue them. Jesus says, if Jesus isn't rubbing up against you, then that, that reveals something. If you're not, that either you're not being honest or you're not following him. Jesus will step on our toes. He will rub up against us. He will shape us, mold us, transform us. He will rub up against me. And it's his invitation extended to us. When his teachings rub up against us, it's revealing the true state of our heart. And we finally then are confronted with that. And Jesus is saying, you're still mine. I love you. Come to me. Be changed by me. Release you holding on to self. Learn to die to self and follow me. Learn to take up your cross and follow me. Even if it means you're going to be uncomfortable in this world. And lastly, we shouldn't be surprised when we get persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised when this world doesn't treat us and welcome us with open arms. Look at 1 Peter with me. First Peter chapter 11, or chapter 2, verse 11. There's no chapter 11 of First Peter. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits live such good lives that even those unbelievers look at you and they say, what, why are you doing what you're doing? And your answer can be because of Jesus. Why are you living so differently because of Jesus? Why are you forgiving that which the world says is unforgivable because of Jesus? Why are you so merciful because of Jesus? Live your lives in such a way where the only reason you have and the only excuse you have for doing what you're doing and living how you're living is because of Jesus. Church, we have an opportunity in this world of outrage. We have an opportunity in this world of division to be peacemakers, to be followers of Jesus to the end of the earth, to follow him wherever he goes, and, and, and I want to say this as, as I just wrap it up. Teenagers, middle schoolers, and high schoolers, like whoever, wherever you are in this room, and if you're listening online, you are walking one of the most hardest paths of a disciple of Jesus. You get smeared for following him. I did. You get insults. You get beat down. You get laughed at. You get made fun of. Don't make the mistake that I did. Listen to me. Don't make the mistake I did. Don't you give in to the world's ways and the world's pressures. You stay faithful to Jesus. 
Find people who love you enough to remind you of your identity in him. Your identity is not in what other people think of you. Your identity is not in your mistakes, past, present, or future. Your identity is not in your performance on the baseball field, in the swimming pool, in the classroom, or on the stage. Your identity is in Christ and him alone. You stay faithful to him, and you do not waver from that truth. And it, listen to me. It may not feel worth it. It may not feel worth it right now, but at the end of the day, it will be. Stay faithful to him. Jesus will say to you, and he says to us, I understand, keep going, persevere, stay faithful, stay loyal to me. Go for kindness, not for cool. Cool wins high school, kindness wins life. <laughs> Don't be surprised when persecution happens. Rejoice, Jesus says. Your persecution for, the following, for following Jesus is evidence of you actually being a Christian. You can be blessed when the world rejects you. You can be blessed when the world persecutes you. Why? Because you need nothing from the world. You have everything in Christ through the gospel. Amen? Let's stand and let's worship in light of that truth.